Welcome to Steam Pod, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Kit Prendergast. Kit is a native bee scientist and science communicator who's passionate about ensuring that we can all learn more about our indigenous bees and not just their popular honeybee cousins so that we can make a difference to their conservation. Join us as we talk about Australian native bees, bee conservation, and biological taxonomy. Welcome, Kit. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steve Hard. It's wonderful to speak to you today all about bees and everything that you're working on. Yeah, it's um, great to be chatting and buzzing about bees with you. Thanks. Oh, that's cool. I love how into the whole, like, not just the topic, but just the entire aesthetic. It's fantastic. <laughs> so what drew you to zoology to begin with? Um, so I absolutely adore animals and I have my whole entire life. When I was in year seven, like, you know, we give each other nicknames and I was animal freak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I was animal freak and um, I've just had this like great like passion for, for animals. Uh, my, my parents have had to put up a lot. Like, I guess I was a good teenager in the way I never drank. I never did drugs. All that <laughs> stuff. I'd um, sneak pet mice into my bedroom, pet axolotls <laughs> and, you know, bring home like injured baby parrots and all that sort of <laughs> so I was that like weird wild child like I was climbing trees and you know like really into nature and yeah just just loved animals um and I, I also love science and I have this like huge curiosity and I think that that passion to uh explore the world and discover more about other species and how they think and how they behave as well as how i can you know make a difference to them um and help people understand them and also conserve them that's how i got into zoology i guess combining those passions i mean i i also did an arts degree so i was sort of tossing up between following a science path versus following a an arts path in particular cultural studies um, nice. and going through university, I realized that I definitely preferred um, science in terms of a, a career path. Um, so that's very cool. That's how I got nice. into zoology. That is very cool. So what sort of cultural studies were you interested in? Uh, so I did a degree in English and cultural studies, and I studied everything from pop culture to myth history to medievalism. Um as I've got dogs with me, so yeah, <laughs> all good. <laughs> They'll be, you know, chiming in in the background. Uh, so medievalism, I, I studied romance um, and uh, also uh, philosophy. So uh, a huge range. Um, then I started running out of units that I was interested in. So I started doing <laughs> like English, uh, no Australian canonical literature. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, a nice. whole range of, of, of things. Yeah, massively diverse. That's very cool. It's awesome. So, how, like, given your incredible love of all animals, how did you find yourself down the bee path? Yeah, so it was very, I guess, um, unplanned. Like, you hear often people that when they become, you know, specialized on a particular animal, they're like, "Oh, I love." bees since I was a, a little kid and I I never like you know I liked bees but I never really because I think like most people um they I didn't realize that there were really more bees than honeybees I knew there were bumblebees but not not in Australia um yeah and so I yeah I developed my passion for bees quite late in life <laughs> Um, and, uh, so I'd, I was, um, a huge horse lover when I was growing up and I still do love horses. Yep. And so I did my honors on horses. And then after I finished honors, I, I knew I wanted to continue my studies further and, you know, get to have doctor in front of my name. Uh, <laughs> 
However, working with horses, it's very challenging in a scientific setting. So I started thinking about other species I could research and other research projects. So when you're designing a PhD study, it's better to, rather than say, I want to work on this particular animal, to say, here's a problem or here's here's something that's unsolved and then you, you know use a particular species to solve that question um, and so I started thinking about all these types of projects and um, I went to a talk on um, like on not really on native bees but sort of this this man was a, a photographer and I went to this talk and he was showing um, his photos of native bees and I was like, these are really, really cool. And I didn't even realize that there were so many native bees um, and they'd be like fascinating to study and see how many there are, especially in Southwest Western Australia, because this is a biodiversity hotspot. Um, yeah. Having a very large number of plant species that are found nowhere else in the world, um, in particular wildflowers, Lots of the wildflowers probably need bees. Um, and here in, you know, in Perth, um, well, I'm now in Bunbury, but in, in Perth and this region anyway, the Southwest WA, um, it's urbanized. This presents challenges probably to, to native bees um, through destruction of habitat, but also, you know, people plant gardens. How does this impact the native bees? And so that's how it, developed and how I, I got into bees and then now I'm like you know renowned for, for being like you know the, the bee girl that my, my bee person <laughs> it's, um so yeah it's they're now very much part of my life and my persona so yeah that is so cool so with the native bee research I mean is there like how much research is being done in the area that you're doing in terms of the way that um, I guess the competition between native bees and the introduced species. Yeah, I feel like um, I got into this at a really like critical time. Um, so while I was doing my studies, I've been finding um, lots of people are starting to look at sort of the same research questions throughout the world. Um, and yeah, it's it's quite coincidental maybe or maybe like you know I guess using my my cultural studies thing there's like been a, a shift I guess in in research focus um and more and more people are realizing that um honeybees are an introduced species and contrary to what the media um is portraying they're actually um not endangered or threatened um and so looking at um, how how an introduced abundant species might be impacting wildlife. So I guess, especially in Australia, there's been a lot of focus on introduced species and their impacts on wildlife in terms of mammals. So cats and, yeah. and their impact on marsupials. And um, the honeybee is an, an interesting one because it is an introduced species, but it's also a domesticated species and of economic importance. And so that creates a little bit of a, a conflict as well. Um, yeah. So all these sort of uh, questions have been, you know, started to be researched and um, studies across the world are finding that honeybees aren't um, particularly benign when it comes to their impact on um, native bees. And, you know, it's not um, in every case that they're going to outcompete native bees, but it there is you know, increasing accumulating evidence that they can have negative impacts. So it's something we need to be aware of. Yeah. And it's so interesting because, you know, commonly you hear about all the save the bees stuff, you know, we need to look after bees. We need to, you know, do the seed, seed bombs and plant diverse, you know, gardens for uh, urbanized bees. But, you know, with the work that you're doing, like you, you're saying that a lot of Bees do behave differently depending on, you know, what species they are, which makes sense. But how does all of this, I guess, common, not really misconception, but this idea of how we're supposed to save bees impact the different species? So are we, are they just getting us to save the honeybees or are they getting us to save the bees in general? Like how much of this advice they give us 
really helps, I guess, the overall bee populations. Yeah, so lots of it actually doesn't help or can be even counteractive to helping the bees that need helping, so the you know the wild native bees. So I guess the first you know sort of point about like um, you know you should uh, have bee honey bees in your backyard. That's definitely not helping the wild bees because the increasing densities of honey bees um, can outcompete the native bees, and then um, some of the plants that are you know promoted to help bees actually don't help the native bees so exotic plants many of our native bees are quite specialized so if you're planting exotic plants that honeybees like um you know things like poppies or lavender or borage um all those are introduced species in australia and you know if they go to get into the get out into the wild they become they could become invasive species but even in gardens um they're going to be promoting the honeybees over the native bees because many of our native bees won't forage on these introduced plants. So even if you have, and this is like, this is a really surprising finding from my research. Um, if you have a garden that has lots and lots of different plant species, you know, usually it's sort of like a mantra, plant be bees and the bees will come and more species means more you know, biodiversity is actually not the case. Yeah. You've got a garden full of exotic plant species. So really the best thing um, is to have, you know, big proportions of native plants in your garden. Um, and then, you know, other things like uh, that the native bees need that actually don't, you know, have nothing to do with honeybees, uh, you know, patches of bare soil for the ground nesting bees, um, trees with tiny little holes in them for the cavity nesting bees and you know that's not part of the the honey save the honeybee um recommendations and <laughs> yeah. it's a yeah very um very different way of, of helping the native bees and the honeybees and as i said um helping honeybees just doesn't doesn't help um the native bees if you're increasing densities of honeybees you're just increasing the the competitive pressure yeah so when I was crash coursing bees in preparation for our talk, like all of the stuff that came up about, you know, the way that you know people were saying, you know, we need to, you know, host local hives and you, you know, add bee hotels to your homes, all of that starts to sound like contradictory or um not quite mutually exclusive, but they you know, people just lump it all into this one big space and it yeah, it's hard to kind of see what we can do to try and help and how we can focus kind of those efforts, especially when we're living in urban areas. So in urban environments, when they're telling us, you know, we need to do these things, what's the best approach for us to take if we do want to try and look into how we can help bees? Yeah. So there's a number of, of ways you can help the native bees. Um, and they sort of start from very local to more global action. So at your very local level, as in where you live, um, keeping patches of bare soil, creating bee hotels that are based on scientific evidence. So the ones that Bunnings sell, the, the brand Mr. Fothergills aren't very good, um, but you know, um, making your own bee hotels, they can be good for the cavity nesting bees. Uh, planting high proportions of native flowers, um, retaining, um, you know, trees, the, the native trees on your verges, especially the, the flowering ones like eucalyptus um, and clistamine are really good. Um, and then if you expand out a bit, um, you know, critical thing I found is protecting patches of bushland around the suburbs. So not allowing bushland to be cleared for road development or housing development, um, and then, you know, further afield, um, you know, um, promoting wildlife friendly farming. So retaining lots of native vegetation and trees, um, and you know, wildflower strips, um, in agricultural areas. And, um, then like at the, the big global level, what, you know, one of the, the biggest threats to native bees is like habitat loss and climate change as a whole. And so to address probably that the, these the biggest threats to native bees, you can still do something um, by modifying your diet. So 
uh, ag animal agriculture results in clearing of native vegetation and um, compacts the soil. Um, lots of the, the crops that livestock eat are not good for pollinators. So, you know, grasses, um, they don't offer nectar and pollen. And then livestock contribute a lot to climate change as well. So by um, eliminating or um, reducing meat in your diet, you can make a huge um, impact in that way. It's, yeah, basically the bees are just part of a smaller, well, they're part of a bigger issue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So with the native bees that we have around you, the kind of advice that you're giving us, is that applicable irrespective of where we are in terms of the way that we can affect our immediate environment or does it is it something that we need to look into the types of native species that we've got around before we can kind of make those sorts of choices yeah so the the best plants for native bees um in australia will be very different from the best plants for native bees in france or brazil yeah. um, but when it comes to in australia the this what's important is the genus of plants. So you don't really mm -hmm. need to be super specific to the plants that are endemic to your very, very local area. Uh, yeah. so this would be a, an evolutionary dead end if things were so specialized that it was a single, <laughs> a single place. And, you know, plants and, and animals have migrated around naturally um, colonize new areas um so the the important thing is the genus so yeah most eucalyptus are good for native bees um irrespective of where you are in australia and even some that um genera for example angophora that is a genus that doesn't occur in western australia but uh it's been planted um here and the native bees will forage on that so uh, looking at the the native plants and the the genus, um, and seeing what species you can can get um, that are available available to you. That's pretty cool. Okay, and uh, one thing I did wonder as well with the like I'm pretty sure you're aware of postcode honey, that big thing in WA where you know they're keen on getting. Um, I guess, local honey from each suburb in the state made available. Yeah. 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 So with stuff like that, um, I'm assuming most of them are working with the introduced honeybees. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that would be. Yeah. Um, so most of our native bees don't make honey. Uh, it's only eusocial mm -hmm. colonial uh, bees that make honey. We have 11 of these. These are in the tribe Melipanini, but they don't occur in southwest Western Australia. They occur up north in Western Australia and then um, into the Northern Territory and um, then down the East Coast down to Sydney. So, and they only make a small amount of honey. So this postcode honey would be um, honeybee honey. It's, yeah. I guess it's not a, a, a bad thing um, because if you're getting things locally and this applies to any food, it means there's less yeah. transport, so less carbon emissions. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing, but yeah, it's, it's just for honeybees. It's mainly about the introduced bees. Yeah. It's interesting. Oh, cause um, I did hear that there were like small batch hives that were doing the native bee honey and it was apparently um, not classified as honey because of its water content. Yeah, so that's the yeah. Melipanini honey. Um, you can't get it here in Southwest Western Australia because we've got very yeah. um, strict honey importation laws. Um, yeah. So even the, it's very weird because um, it's, you know, it's definitely honey. It's produced by bees, the same process, it's just different species. Yeah. Their honey does have a higher water content. Um, and so the standards for what honey is, and I guess that it's important to have standards, especially recently, because honey is a very um, prized and has been throughout history, but a very prized. Yeah. And so um, recently there's been like fraud where people have been um, making like 
fraudulent honey syrup and selling it as honey um where it's it's clearly it doesn't have many of the um biological properties that can only um be possessed by honey through you know the, the process of the bees yeah um so yeah the standards for what what honey is but it's it's based on you know the honeybee honey and the the melipanini honey has a high water content and um that's just how they they make it and um yeah so it's that's cool not, currently classified as honey but there there is discussions who have a specific classification for this other honey that's kind of cool lots of details that you don't really think about when you look at honey on the shelf <laughs> that's cool so what got you into your psychom activities and you know getting completely into the bee aesthetic and making that a whole thing that is so cool I I love performing and uh, so I really like that I've been able to take my science and my bees and I, you know, I'm very passionate about them and the good thing about I guess bees is many people um, are interested in them and they're just not really aware about the native bees so in part it was um, sort of I guess finding something that I, I realized people could get into but also I like I'm this huge like science Nazi and like I hate people, like getting science wrong uh, I hate misinformation I hate pseudoscience and so I realized that there was like so much misinformation out there about helping these and about bees in general their biology and there's yeah there is so much pseudoscience when it comes to bees so i i was like i need to i need to change this um so part of it was like this is really cool i can get people into bees and part of it was like oh my god i hate like all this misinformation i need to do something about it uh so yeah <laughs> that is absolutely cool so what sort of activities are you doing at the moment so i i visit schools a lot and that's my favorite thing because kids you never know what questions they're gonna ask um and they're just like this they're, they're so keen to learn and and find information and also um i guess they they also get excited that i'm i guess i am who i am like i'm not the image of a scientist that i guess most of them expect um, you know, and I've even had some of them ask me like, oh, are you like, you, you still in high school or something? I'm like, <laughs> um, but, uh, just, yeah, like showing them that, you know, a scientist doesn't have to be this old guy in a cardigan. Like I'm nothing against old guys in cardigans, but <laughs> like, um, yeah, that they, they, anyone can be a scientist and that you don't you don't have to be this like super strict, dry, boring person. Like you can go out there, you can wear colorful clothes. You can like, just be yourself. You can do cartwheels, um, that sort of thing. And yeah, so it's like fun <laughs> with, with kids. I uh, so I often get asked to talk at like, uh, gardening groups or, uh, in like local councils. And so that's my, my other side of, of the scientific outreach. And then I also very early on in my PhD created a Facebook group called Bees in the Burbs. And um, that's been going on since since then, since mid 2016. So um, I guess an, an online social media presence and, and outreach. That's awesome. So, you know, just helping people answer questions about, you know, bees in their local environment and how, what they can do. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So now that you've finished your PhD, congratulations. What are you working on now? Oh, so many things. So firstly, uh, even though the PhD is finished, there's, I did so much research and so much data collection that only part of it even made it into my thesis so i've got like like 10, 10 half finished papers 
still wow from my thesis that i'm gradually working on and then i'm working on a couple of reviews and they are always really challenging because uh they just take so long and it's um like when they're if they're published it's great because they get cited a lot they get read a lot um unlike you know i guess data papers um you know synthesizing the research and identifying gaps in knowledge is always really useful uh but they just yeah a lot of trolling through the literature um and then i'm doing surveys of the jarra forest for um department of biodiversity conservation and attractions which is lovely because a beautiful beautiful place to to survey and yeah so been up um sort of near broome surveying um traditional landowners country which is really amazing and a great privilege then I also am starting to do some work on bee behavior and cognition in urban cognition. areas, wild, wilder areas. Um, so how they, I guess, they're, how fast they learn. And this is, there's been a lot of research on honeybee learning and like honeybees are great to work with because they're actually really, um, you know, they can be manipulated quite well much harder to work with the wild bees and so <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of a challenge um but yeah it's it's early days i haven't um we've just been planning the the studies so far that's very cool yeah so uh, i'm doing a, a lot <laughs> yeah quite a bit that's awesome so yeah Bee cognition, that sounds like a, such a cool area to work with. Is there any particular focus that you have in terms of the way they learn? Um, so learning uh, different colours and um, their, their, I guess, how, how fast they can learn um, particular stimuli and how this relates to urbanisation. So there's there's been uh, quite a, a body of literature um, on other animals and how urbanization affects their cognition and many species urban environments are a lot more challenging so they're finding that animals are smarter in urban environments yeah. um so it's stuff like and raccoons and, and cockatoos and, and species like that and so we want to see if that is also the case in um in bees that's very very cool that'd be very interesting to see and i guess it will also kind of lead into the way they end up interacting with the native species as well because of the way that they learn. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Awesome. So in your research with the native bees, what are some of the most interesting things that you learn? In terms of interesting as in things I, I didn't expect or like yeah. new discoveries. Um, one of them was that, you know, that how I, I said that there's sort of like a, a mantra that, more plant species means more bees and i've actually found the opposite like yeah very surprised i like did i did i stuff up like, oh, no, I yeah <laughs> i don't know was i tired did i <laughs> injuries wrong but no i it was i definitely like i went through and i found that's definitely the case and and as i said when i looked at the data more closely it was because um when there's more plant species in urban areas, most of those extra plants are exotic plants. And when you've got, you know, in a, a fixed area, when you've got more plants, it means there's fewer flowers of um, the, the native plants that make up a smaller proportion of the plants available. And so it did make sense. Um, and that, but that was very interesting. And um, I also made a couple of like uh, discoveries of, of novel bee behaviors. And these are things that I think like, Lots of the, the cool scientific discoveries, people will set out to study something and then they find something else out <laughs> along the way. And so I've, I recorded the first um, uh, nesting uh, behavior of this bee called um, Megachili igniter at the time. It's now being reclassified into its own genus. Um, so it's only cool. in this genus, Rosanapis. Um, and so Rosanapis igniter, I found that using my bee hotels, um, I like, I, I found these nests and they were like, they had Banksia fuzz in them. I was like, what, what the hell? Like why, why is there Banksia fuzz in them? And then I found that every single nest of this species had Banksia fuzz in it. And what's even more unusual is that this species 
it doesn't forage on banksia. It's actually a specialist on um, native fabaceae, so plants like Jacksonia. And so it's collecting this um, banksia fuzz, putting it in its nest. We don't really know why. Um, it must have like some adaptive benefit um, or in the past did at least because, um, you know, why else would you go to the effort of, of doing this? Um, but it also shows how important it is to, to consider both foraging and nesting requirements yeah. to serve the species. So that was that was really interesting um, and something that had been uh, never, never found before. So that was really cool. And then another, this wasn't so much part of my PhD research, but um, I... During the, the period I was doing my PhD, I went to study my favourite bee species, Amagilla dorsoni, which is one of Australia's largest bees. And it has like really cool um, mating behaviours where they've got like two male forms. One is bit big, the major males and the minor males. The major males uh, fight with each other to mate with females when they first emerge from the nesting holes. Um, and then the minor males, they can't. Um, win battles so they sort of sneak off to the flowers and hope to find a female who escapes being mated at the mating grounds and is, is foraging on the flowers um, and we were uh, making recordings of their mating behavior and I found that sometimes they can mate for over 10 minutes which is quite a long time for bees so that was that <laughs> wow was, yeah that's really cool and really weird <laughs> but yes just the way that they act, um, the yeah, the hierarchy that they've got set up there. That's very neat. You didn't. I don't expect that there would be those kind of behaviors in insects, but that's that's very cool. Yeah, it's um, they they were one of the I guess the first native bees I sort of became aware of because these when they've got these um, you know two different male forms with a different like mating tactics. Um, it's called like alternative mating tactics. And yeah, um, yeah, I was. I learned about it in, um, I think, like third year zoology at UWA. And so that was my sort of introduction to native bees, bee sex. <laughs> got me Good way it. in. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, that is a lot of very awesome stuff that you would have learned just by being out on the field. Yeah. So with the nesting habits, is nesting something that bees tend to do? Uh, so every um, female native bee needs to make a nest. Every female um, in the native bees, except for the eusocial male and panini, they can all reproduce. It's unlike the honeybees. So they will need to nest. Uh, some of them dig their own nest in the ground. Some of them chew their own nests out in wood. Um, and then the other ones, they rely on little holes in wood that are already there, created by wood boring beetles. Um, or you can create your own holes in, in bee hotels. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Didn't think about it that way before. That's very interesting. <laughs> there's, there's just so much yet to be discovered about native bees. And one of the, the critical gaps in knowledge is the taxonomy. So we actually don't know how many species of native bees we have in Australia. Um, and oh. I've, done my surveys about um it's usually about a fifth of the species i can't id out because there's no keys and um so there's there's these things called taxonomic keys and like you, you key out the yeah. species and they can't be keyed out and uh so there's at the at the moment there's a bit over 1500 species of these are just scientifically described, but there are mm -hmm. so many species in museums that they they aren't scientifically described. And to you describe something, it doesn't have a scientific name. It can't really be conserved. We can't say that, you know, this is how many species there are. It's like this this big knowledge gap. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and we know so much about honeybees um, and there's the native bees are really lagging behind, so they they definitely need yeah. attention. They do. That's fascinating. So when a species, or when you can't classify them, like how how are they 
recorded or documented then if you can't give them a name and you can't give them a family or a genus? Uh, I can, so I can ID them to genus, um, yeah. but the, so um, almost all the, the genera I, I described and so I can ID it to genus, which is actually very yeah. tricky. Um, like <laughs> features are, like you can't just look at a photo, or I can, but most people can't. Um, but sort of <laughs> I've, I've looked at like thousands and thousands of these and I now have like a sort of gestalt of what, a megachilly versus Leoproctus versus Homolictus versus Euhasma. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I can ID it to genus. And then if I, you know, look through keys, look through descriptions, look through museum databases and I can't find a match, then I will give it a, a placeholder name in every single one of my species that I collect as well. I give them a unique project number like project code and then a number so every specimen has a project code and a number and then I can go back to that and hopefully in the future like when there's been uh, taxonomic revisions or if someone is doing a revision they can you know use my data as well to um, uh, you know understand the like the species or the variation or where they they're distributed so they've all got yeah, science is a, a lot about a lot of details and data and, and the minuscule. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating because if they haven't been given that official name, then no one else knows that they can look into them, that they can be researched, mm. that they can be studied, and that's yeah, that's crazy. So there's a lot of a lot of species that kind of do fall through the gaps. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's nuts. Is might be out of scope. Is this something that is across the board? Like, are there a lot of these sorts of species of um, insects and animals which you know have just been given, assigned a number, but not much else attributed to them? Yeah, especially with insects. Um, you know, there's there's just you know a bewildering diversity out there and um yeah they it's it's crazy i guess how much we don't know about them australia um is such a it's a mega biodiverse country and we we know the the birds and mammals quite well um reptiles and amphibians also quite well but the insects are really lagging behind yeah yeah and they contribute such a lot to the biodiversity too, and yeah. we know so little about them. Yes. Ah, that's crazy. All this potential area to be explored. <laughs> Not enough time to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how many of these numbered and identified species do you have that still need to have their own little thing attributed to them? Uh, probably, probably about over 50 by now i think that's a lot yeah that's heaps that's just only a small fraction i like i bet there's probably about a thousand species in australia that are still undescribed that's insane but very very cool so in terms of okay just because it's not my space so now very very curious if they're all not described how do other researchers know how to find ones which have been previously partially described by others um they they can't um the <laughs> like if it's described you know um what what needs to happen is they need to be databased and put into a museum and then if someone's doing a revision of a genus they will then um, go to all the museums and get loans of the specimens in that genus or subgenus. And then, you know, cause like the, the code name I give an undescribed species, if it occurs in other places and someone else collects it, or even the same place and someone else collects it, they might get to give it a different code name. So you need to look at the yeah, exactly. same species. So yeah, um, museums are, are really, really valuable um, and, um, they're also, I guess, like underappreciated and, um, absolutely. Yeah. Natural history, history collections are, are invaluable. And yeah, some people, 
it's really weird. They get um, funny about like scientists like me collecting species. Um, so to describe a species and to record it, um, you have to collect a specimen and then euthanize it. And it's it's mm. my least favorite part of the job, the knowledge that yeah. I'm, you know, I guess killing bees. But at yeah. the same time, I'm saving bees because if I didn't do that, we would not know that species occurs or it's an undescribed species or where they occur or you know this this place is very important habitat for this particular um, taxon and um, yeah it's it's a necessary evil of the job and you know yeah. people it's actually like the the losses from you know a day of scientific collection and nothing compared to the losses that someone would cause through eating meat every day for example so it's yeah it's it's you need to look at the big picture yeah and you know you can preserve the information through data and images and stuff like that but you know having the actual specimen provides you know more detail that you would lack otherwise mm. especially if you don't know what somebody will be needing to look at in the future from the data that you've collected yeah yeah so like yeah science is it's not an individual endeavor like you're contributing yeah. this amazing big body of knowledge um, that everyone benefits from so all your specimens are carefully curated somewhere in the natural history <laughs> yeah at the moment um they're all in um, my collections and I'm um, starting to, to put them into the WA Museum so that they can be then available. And, yeah, there's just – to me, this is, like, one of the most important parts of my research, but there's no funding to do databasing and it's boring. And, um, it, yeah. yeah, people just don't realise that that's – that's the it's a big part of the part um yeah you know more important than i guess uh like just writing a paper about um the findings like that's really important but you know these specimens they you know they're, they're invaluable and there's just no funding for that sort of stuff there's like funding for for field work or equipment but this is actually a really important part that gets overlooked yeah well, all the other stuff has more immediate results and more immediate, relatively speaking, but, you know, all the stuff to do with the databasing and the curation, that is groundwork for future science that hasn't been started yet. Yeah. And that's why it's so important. That's cool. Yeah, that, yeah, just the scope of that is just incredible. I love it. <laughs> Very awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, I might move on to some of those other questions that I told you about. So, what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? Probably um, gymnastics and circus. So, sort of Ooh. acrobatics. Yeah. That's cool. I, um, so, I love performing, as I said, and I also yeah. I love the the thrill of being able to do some like sort of cool tricks and I also have like naturally like naturally good flexibility and I'm small so it, it all sort of works out. Works out. <laughs> That's cool. So how do you get that out of your system? Uh so I did gymnastics as a child and I loved it and then my parents made me quit when I was a teenager and I sort of like <laughs> never forgive <laughs> them for that. Um, and then when I got uh, older, I there's not many adults gymnastics, but I found one, yeah. and I yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and then but then there wasn't that performance aspect, and one mm. of my good friends is a circus performer, and so um, she started up a like a, a little amateur circus group and nice and that and i got to perform in fringe festival and that was really fun and that's so cool now that i moved i need to find a new circus or um gymnastics place so um 
Yeah, that's cool. I, yeah, I still um, stretch every day, um, like do the splits every day, and um, I try and um, go for a jog to the park and then do some like handstands and cartwheels <laughs> and like it's it's just playing. I think that's what I really love about circus and gymnastics. Like you're playing and you get to have fun and get in touch with that like childish part um but then you can sort of do it as well more like adult like sort of burlesque style so there's just yeah there's so much that you can do with it there are a lot of opportunities for that i mean silks is nice and flashy but you know opportunities for performances for that are a bit more limited have you been to spun up no i haven't um it's it's really hard i guess um when i've got uh field work um, yeah, it often like coincides with those those sort of things. So I haven't, but I, I know something I'm uh, I've been like wanting to to go to sometime. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, a few of my friends go there every year, and it's it sounds like it's such a great environment, such a great space to do all sorts of really cool things. Yeah, yeah, yeah very very cool. Okay, and which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Oh, okay. I was like. A book nerd. I love books. I loved reading. Um, unfortunately, since you know, I sort of got into um, you know, since uni, I've just had so much like uh, work reading, to do enjoyment reading. But I, yeah, uh, so I loved Del Toro Quest by Emily mm. Broder. Um, so I. Despite being like a scientist, I love fantasy and sci-fi. Um, yeah. So this was a, a really um, fantasy one. There were all these magical creatures. There was a quest. Uh, so I really loved loved that book. Yes, that's cool. Yeah, it's hard when you get older, and you know, even if you love like I love reading heaps when I was a kid, and then at uni, all the necessary reading, and I guess as an academic, all the research reading mm-hmm. kind of really eats into that <laughs> that's cool emily rod is really awesome i did love emily rodder she or she australian i've forgotten i can't i can't remember now but she like she's prolific um yeah she was many books yeah and tv series <laughs> yeah very cool okay and last one what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do or what advice should they ignore uh, I would say that follow your passions, definitely. Um, do something that is meaningful to you, that you get some sort of meaning and enjoyment out of. Don't do something just because it's a flashy job or it brings in a lot of money. You know, Do something that you really you enjoy because you know it becomes part of your life especially if you're doing you know phd studies um and the other thing i would say is don't um don't forget who you are um you know embrace like what makes you unique and make it sort of you know part of your job as well you don't have to conform to a particular model of what a scientist should act or look like um yeah it's like make sure that you still have that you know that part of your life that that makes you you rather than your career overrunning who you are yeah that is important because sometimes you just get so deep into it you you kind of lose you lose sight of the reasons why you got there to begin with yeah yeah that's cool excellent advice okay so well thank you so much kit for speaking with me today it has been so amazing learning about your research getting to understand a lot more about native bees and also um, i guess the the whole idea of taxonomy and the way that works in science like that that blows my mind and i'm going to start looking into that a bit more <laughs> awesome. well i think um if that's the case then I've got across what I want, so. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool.
if you would like to find out more about what you do, where can they learn more? So I have a Facebook group called Bees and the Verbs. I also have a book called Creating a Haven for Native Bees, which has information on what are the best plants for bees, how to make bee hotels that work, and about the biology and ecology of our native bees. Then I also have um, a little guide about um, bee taxonomy called A Crash Course in Native Bee Taxonomy. And, nice. Um, then I also have a book on Anagilla dorsoni, and this is more of a – so the other ones are like information-based ones. This one has info about Anagilla dorsoni, but it's a narrative. It was about my like journey to find it and all these like weird – wonderful adventures that I went on so um those are my my book that um, people can get by emailing me at kitprendergast21 at gmail.com and then uh, my research so that the publications I have a research gate profile so if you just type in research gate kit prendergast um you'll find my page with all my publications and um if you can't just download them from there you can send me like a request through ResearchGate and I'll send you the the scientific article for free. Awesome thank you so much and yeah it's been so wonderful to speak to you today and yeah really enjoyed it and I hope you have an amazing day and enjoy doing your research up in southwest and well up north as well and yeah it's amazing thank you so much. Thanks. I really enjoy hearing kids speak about her passion for native bees and learning how much there is yet to learn about them. It was also fascinating to hear about taxonomy and identification of biology, the gaps in our knowledge, and the scope of the work that can and needs to be done in this space. To learn more about Kit and what we discuss on the show or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Kit and her work on her Facebook group, Bees and the Burbs, and through her published works, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.